but I don't I really don't have any regrets I really don't I've I've lived exactly how I've wanted to I've tried my hardest every single time I didn't win the matches that maybe I should have always won or but I really gave it my all so that for me is enough Hello everybody, welcome back to The Body Serve. I'm Jonathan. And I'm James. We come to you a few days after Mariah Carey has released her 15th studio album of her career. Yes. Laden with bops. <laughs> People keep calling her a legacy artist. Mm -hmm. And uh, that, that this album is finally treading all those traps that are laid for legacy artists, right? You don't want to be trying too hard to sound current. You don't want to lean too heavy on nostalgia. And she really, uh, she, she did something here. The trick here for people who haven't been paying attention over the years, I mean, she's been gone a while. Last record was 2014. And even then that had many stops and starts before it came out. There was mm. 2009 before then. So it's been a while. But the, the through line through all her records from the emancipation of Mimi onwards is that she's been making this kind of music. Like this is not a departure from anything that she's done. It's, well, it's tighter. I think this is a lot more minimalistic. Vocally, there's less. I think it's an improvement on what she's been trying to do before. The, the big difference for me is, like you said, the, the minimalism in terms of the production. Mm. It highlights her voice more, whereas, especially on the last record, it, it was kind of lost in the production a lot. Yeah. But at the core of it, not to go on a tangent, at the core of it, She's doing what she wants to do, and she's doing it very well right now. It's very... There's not a skippable song on the album. It, it's very much like a cohesive work, which I like, it, which is increasingly rare these days because labels are, like, cramming songs on albums to get all these songs on the Billboard Hot 100, right? Drake's al albums are, like, 18 songs long now. A lot of it is filler. A lot of it is boring. Sorry, hun. She knows more than most what it takes to have a Billboard Hot 100 number one. Not many people have those. Mm -hmm. They're difficult to I get. I can name one in particular who does not have that mm -hmm. still. And uh, I'm heartened and encouraged by this, this murmuring that's going on now. Mariah even said it on Watch What Happens Live with Andy Cohen that she would love to do a remix of a no-no with Lil' Kim, who's track is sampled for that record and cardi b <laughs> i think she's trying to speak it into existence because that would be amazing it would be the pettiest thing that has ever happened in the music industry <laughs> and that person who still is struggling to have a billboard hot 100 number one would be the main target mm -hmm. it would be very clear <laughs> so we admittedly have been uh taken away from tennis a lot these past few weeks some family things some work things we unfortunately weren't really able to watch a lot of it and therefore we're not going to go too heavy on the here's what happened here's how it happened that sort of thing this is uh you know a return to checking into the sport but also a lot of the conversations that are happening outside of the court itself luckily for us the ins and outs of the tennis on the court it's not really our bag to begin with so we don't feel like we're letting you down too much and it turns out it wasn't all that interesting shockingly 
these last two weeks dominated by men's tennis, not that interesting. Well, the, the next-gen finals wasn't bad. Mm-hmm. It wasn't bad, per se. Yep. But let's start in London at the O2 Arena. We had a lot of star power missing in Nadal and Del Potro pulling out. Of course, Annie Murray didn't qualify. But still, the, the two, two of the biggest titans of men's tennis, Roger Federer and Novak Djokovic, could have met in the final. I think a lot of people expected that to happen, and it did not. We had joked on the previous episode about how lopsided the two, what do you call it, draws were, the two groups. sections, groups. Well, not lopsided, just lopsided in uh, interest. Yes. Mm-hmm. And as it turned out, they were equally disinteresting. <laughs> there was a lot of just flat tennis, straight sets, wins. Uh, Federer lost badly to Nishikori in his first match and then rebounded quite well. Meanwhile, Nishikori did absolutely nothing his next two matches. Right. Like, it was some of the most shocking stuff <laughs> to see those score lines. Yeah. Uh, Sasha Zverev lost very badly to Novak Djokovic, which became quite an interesting story later on in the tournament. This after he had just previously lost to Novak handily in Shanghai. Mm-hmm. So he was coming off back-to-back beatdowns. And really, in the midst of of a mini slump. The second half of his year was disappointing, his ranking had slipped a bit, and I think people were starting to to not doubt that he is one of the next big things, but slow their role a little bit, thinking that maybe Sasha's going to need more time than we thought. And look, look what happened. Novak turned in a stellar performance in the semifinals to take out Kevin Anderson. It was, what, his fourth six-foot-a-million player that he'd beaten in a row <laughs> right. in straight sets. And he comes into the final with this wave of momentum on the back of losing two matches the entire second half of the season, going on an all-time kind of run, right? Winning mm-hmm. Wimbledon, winning Cincinnati, the U.S. Open. I mean, he had a bit of a, a hiccup against Hachanov in Paris. But, you know, Paris is a weird kind of place. Weird right. things happen there. But this <laughs> felt like he was here for his crowning moment having already secured the year in number one, going to put the ribbon, the bow, wrap it up nicely, his 2018 season, the big comeback finale. And Alexander Zverev was like, hold up. Right. In their first match, it seemed like Sasha didn't have the answer and then stopped trying to look for the answer. He seemed demoralized. In this match, it was an utterly different story. I don't know if he was buoyed by his win over Roger Federer in the semifinals, but the way that he came out against Novak, obviously hitting big serves like he always does, but to win the longer rallies consistently, which is a totally shocking development against Novak. That's something that he does so well, and it's how he got on top of some of his big rivalries against uh, Nadal and Murray, for example. Most shocking for me is those net stats for Sasha Zverev, winning, I believe, 9 of 12 at the net, and showing some deft touch. This is the thing that's been most missing from his game. The thing that he's been most ridiculed for, right? honestly. And it looks like he has put together an, not a beautiful net game, but an adequate one. Who was out here talking about beautiful? Well, <laughs> fair, fair enough. That He's been working with Ivan Lendl. That's new for him. Yeah, Maybe it's too soon to, love, to give that credit. love to credit coaches, and especially Yvonne Lendl, for being a genius magic maker. 
We don't know what sort of role he had in this victory, but uh, it seems like, it, at the very least, a good luck charm to have Lend all around. We got this snippet from Zverev when he was asked about how is it working with Lendl, and is he very rigid with practice times and staying on court, and Zverev said something to the effect of, well, I think Ivan knows that if that's the approach that he's going to take, it's not going to work out, kind of thing. Right, which this was before the tournament. I was like, okay, girl, like, if <laughs> this is clearly not going to work. He said, I'm, a strict coach is not going to work for me. That's just not who I am. I'm like, oh, Lord, this is this relationship is not going to last long. Let's see how this goes into 2019 when he has to play those best of five matches. Mm-hmm. That's his big bugaboo. He's got these four big titles now, the three Masters 1000s. He's got the year in championship. The year in championship hasn't been necessarily a good omen. It wasn't a bellwether for Dimitrov last year, but Djokovic and Federer have dominated this tournament for so long. It's It's hard to... To say whether this is a harbinger of good things, right? Sure. I'm just saying. Mm-hmm. We just had Grigor's year. So, <laughs> <laughs> hashtag caution. Sverev was the first player to beat Djokovic and Federer in one tournament since 2012. That's a hell of a stat that surprised me. And this is his first win against a current world number one. Also didn't realize that. The other thing of note here with this match is Novak copped to not necessarily feeling that great the last few weeks which would make sense Mm -hmm. so there's that i i I will not extrapolate further yeah in the previous match against federer zverev versus federer uh there was this weird thing during the second set tiebreak which ended up being the decider in that match a ball kid dropped a ball in the middle of a rally it was behind roger sasha noticed told the umpire and that he'd like to stop the point which is generally how it goes. The umpire sees it, he will stop the point and replay the point. The crowd was uh, annoyed, and they made their annoyance known. They booed him at that point. They booed him at the end of the match. Have they started writing fan mail to Tony Godzik and Craig Tiley about it? We'll get there later. <laughs> the, cus- the customer complaint line. <laughs> a Federer wasn't... I mean, he got it, right? Like, he's been out here for a long time. He understands that these are the rules. Sometimes it's going to go your way. Mm -hmm. He lost that point, unfortunately for him. I feel bad for the ball kid. That's embarrassing. And to think that this little accident could have changed the course of that set is uh, a burden that I hope he has not thought about. So I hope he doesn't listen. Unless he's a Zverev fan. Who knows? (laughs) (laughs) Do not impugn the credibility of the Balkans. <laughs> They're out here doing their job for free. <laughs> Just trying to do their best. I'm, I really hope that somebody bought that kid ice cream after the match because that should not be what he remembers from this match. During his interview, Federer skedaddled off the court very quickly, which is, is fine. That's what a loser should do. The crowd booed Sasha again, and he said, first of all, I'd like to apologize for what happened. And it just struck me as like, why? Why is this kid apologizing? There, There is respect for your opponent, and then there's also like, I didn't do anything wrong. Is he apologizing for what happened or the fact that he beat Federer? Because we've seen that a bunch of times. Right. Like, I'm sorry that I right. beat your guy. You're all here to support him. I get it, you know? I actually felt bad for Sasha in that moment because he clearly felt compelled to apologize for who knows? It could have been a number of reasons. 
he the knew mere, that the crowd didn't want him to win. The mere fact that Sasha feels compelled to do anything says something. <laughs> <laughs> that there was a fuck given about something right. says He's, something. He seems to have been working on his image a little bit over the past this past tournament. Showed some very fine sportsmanship. But the crowd continued to boo during the speech and Annabelle Croft said, Hold up. Everybody just shut up right now. You are being mad disrespectful. Very disrespectful. Like, she just got turned all the way up. And she said, no, no, mm-mm. not well, on my stage. Perhaps there is a, a maturation of Alexandra's verve happening. We shall see. Doubles titleist. I think this was always going to happen. Did you did you have any doubt? No, that no, not at all. Mike Bryan and Jack Sock were going to win this title. Defeating Mahu and Herbert. Uh, Bob Bryan will be back in the beginning of 2019. So does the other Brian just decide to stay with Jack or what? <laughs> no, they're going to be back together. I know. I'm, but if I'm Mike, I'm like, well, like, wow, I have gotten more success than I have in several years with Jack Sock. They're like, what, 40? Like, this is his RRSP he's working on here. They, this is a lot of money. Nobody has that outside of Canada. The 401k. <laughs> Let me translate. I, I think that the Brian brothers should, like, switch off with Jack Sock so each of them can get some some majors next year. So there'll be a thruple? If if you'd like to go there. Somehow, Brian and Sock did not win the doubles team of the year award. They, they lost been, it to Pavic and Marach. Yeah, they haven't been playing together the whole year. Right. But they did win two majors together. Okay. Plus this. Mm-hmm. The other team won one major, the Australian Open. It is not something that I'm going to get worked up about. No, <laughs> just just an observation. What I will be getting worked up about is this whole on-court obstacle course situation again that happened in the doubles match with Mao and Herbert when they were playing Pavic and Maroc earlier in the tournament. We'll get to the whole bit about the on-court mess with the, the, the signage. But then these two clowns are questioning Mao's injury, saying that he was faking it, that, oh, he looked like he was struggling and he called for the medical timeout, and then, oh, but he's fine after that. <laughs> A lot of times players will call for an MTO if they're shocked or or they're scared that something will turn into an injury. You don't always, I think when adrenaline is pumping and everything, you don't always know if an injury is real. Also, it doesn't always hurt as much in the moment as you think it will after. Mm-hmm. You know, like you can sustain kind of a serious injury and it's not as pain. You don't realize how painful it is until you're done. The The point is... He fell over the stupid advertising bollard, which we've seen earlier in the year. I can't even remember who it was now, but I know we covered it then. Fell backwards over this thing. And it's just seen as like, well, that's tennis. I mean, that's something you got to deal with. Got to pay for the sport. And it's so maddening because if you consider tennis a workplace, which is where these people make their living, no other workplace would be having this conversation. Like this is a workplace health and safety issue. Just move the damn thing if people are getting hurt. It's that simple. But in tennis, it's got to be this whole thing. Like, the sport cannot get out of its own way. It's such an obvious problem for player safety. The gov- Like, the governance of tennis makes itself look so incompetent and make the easy things look difficult. And then Pavic and Marak are out here saying that, oh, he knows that they're back there. He should have known. Yes. Don't you love the solidarity among among tennis players? I'm struggling to think of an instance where that kind of position could ever be anything but a bad look. 
this whole business of questioning your opponent's medical timeouts. Mm-hmm. Like, how, how do you come out, even if you feel justified, even if you are justified, how do you come out of that looking like anything but a sore loser after you lose? Right. I, I'm sure their fans think it's, it's fine. Like, that's the right thing to do. The next-gen finals, Stefano Tsitsipas came in as a top seed, and he won the tournament, beating Alex Diminar in the final. What, did, what do you think of this format? Um, I'm sort of, I'm unperturbed by it. I wouldn't, like, it's fine. I, I think this is the place to experiment. You know, not on the, the main ATP tour level events. They want to try out this four game thing. But what else they have? The no, the towel rack thing. The no let. And no ads, right? Mm-hmm. That's, that's cool. I just, I still can't help but think we're addressing a problem that doesn't really exist. Like, if you have a problem with the length of a set in tennis, maybe you just don't like tennis. And maybe attracting people to the game, like, this isn't what's going to attract them. I'm fine if, if this is just a, a thing unto itself. To me, it's, it's kind of cute that they have the young guys playing this wannabe fun version of the game at the end of the year that doesn't really mean anything. It's an exhibition. They get to make a bunch of cash which Stefanos did going undefeated, mm-hmm. making like almost $400,000. Like that's a serious boon to your, your pocket at the end of the right. year as a young person. And, you know, people get to see a different product. Even folks who follow tennis year-round, there's something different to look for in it. If, if it's not about, well, using this to then change the game, I'm totally okay with it. Yes, I totally agree with that. And... I think it's great that at the end of the year, you're not asking these kids to play five set matches because that would also be ridiculous because this is just an additional event that never existed before. Yeah, It's a wonderful way to showcase up and coming talent on the ATP. They've done a really good job about branding that group and generating excitement about them. So yeah, if you want to keep those innovations there, cool. But you know, you don't really need to change the, the, format of tennis in dubai or rotterdam or hala it's not why kids aren't watching tennis in my opinion let's bring back or see what happened was segment for mr julian benito mm-hmm. shall we <laughs> what's good julian he had a lot to say about roger federer and uh preferential treatment on the atp tour <laughs> he did this is a very interesting topic to me and unfortunately, on Twitter, it, it just evolves into warring factions. Mm-hmm. It, because it's Federer, the Federer fans, for the most part, will defend him regardless of the facts. That's not everybody. There are a lot of wonderful Fed fans who we really appreciate out there. Who are but, long-term listeners of the show. Absolutely. And this, this segment is not going to attack Roger Federer just for the sake of attacking him. Mm-hmm. So just a, <laughs> you don't have to skip through it. But what I would love, one of these beautiful days, is whenever there is some kind of controversy involving, in this case, Federer, or any of the top guns that have their very distinct fan groupings. If you're on tennis Twitter, you know, if you think of a Rafa fan, or you think of a Fed fan, there is like a handful on tennis Twitter that you immediately call to mind. Mm-hmm. Like they're easily identified. Like the authorities. Mm-hmm. And so when one of these incidents occur involving their fave, it would be refreshing to see a response 
on Twitter at least, that is not so predictably one-sided, go to bat for my fave, ignore all critical discourse. (laughs) Or the, well, other people do it too, because that's also not an argument. Or, Or other people benefit from conflicts too, just as much. That's it's just not adding a lot to the conversation. Mm-hmm. I don't know how you read through this issue and listen to the podcast if you can understand French or the translations afterward and come away thinking this was a witch hunt against Federer. Mm-hmm. Like that's your exclusive down the line voting ballot. <laughs> You're going to check Republican right down the ballot. I don't know how that happens. Well, we'll get to that. But long story short, since it's been a little while, since we've come to you, you probably already know the story. But Julien Beneteau was on a French radio show on RMC, and he was prompted by the host Eric Saliot about some of the conflicts of interest in tennis, uh, some of the the curious uh, like ownership structures, tournament directors who said they they changed surfaces or did certain things to attract Roger Federer or other top players to their events. Just things that in tennis are are fairly open, and the, the tennis leadership is not all that embarrassed about these conflicts. And I should say that a conflict of interest is not necessarily corrupt in, no. in and of itself. No. A conflict of interest can create the conditions for corruption or, or impropriety. But by itself, all it really means is that you have someone involved in multiple interests. And sometimes they may be at odds with each other. And sometimes those conflicts can have adverse effects. And it's good to know what those conflicts are because perhaps one decision over here might have a direct correlation, a beneficial correlation to that person over there. Right. Or you don't make certain decisions because it may harm your interest over here. Mm -hmm. And up there, there are other people (laughs) who have... A controlling interest in both places there and there <laughs> there is a lot of directions here mm-hmm. it's a there's a it's a web tennis is unmistakably full of conflicts of interest from a tennis commentating point of view from a coaching point of view from a management point of view from a player point of view it's incestuous mm-hmm. tennis is an incestuous sport right we've We've talked a lot about conflicts in commentary, especially, because they're the easiest to spot. They're not really kept secret. Um, the, The conflicts in coaching, coaches as commentators, coaches as owners, marketers, etc. But we haven't talked a lot about ownership. These things are can be a little bit harder to track down. And what's been such a mystery to me is management companies like IMG. Because when you talk to journalists behind the scenes, everybody knows which management company each player belongs to. They know that IMG owns the Miami tournament. They know who owns what tournament and why a certain player will play here and not there. And why certain players of a certain rank, which who would be normally undeserving of a wild card, will get a wild card to certain events because they're from that management company. Right. So journalists get that. The layperson does not. I... I don't get that. I mean, I don't know all the, you know, interlocking interests here because they're not generally written about. Reporters know them, but this isn't something I really see in depth very much in print. And so the response to Beneteau's comments on this radio show were, 
here's what he said, and then he said this, and then he said this. I didn't really see much journalism that said, answer the question like, is that true? Is it true what he said, and is that important if it is? Or what the host alleged as well. Yes. So the host... (laughs) Because it was in French, a lot of what was said by Beneteau and Salio kind of get bunched together as the same, that it was the same person saying the same thing. The general gist from the interview was that there are a whole bunch of conflicts of interest involving Federer (laughs) as to who said what. For us, it's kind of beside the point. Uh, Right. I I mean, Beneteau was sort of guilty by association. But the the one of the really interesting things is that the host Salio relayed this anecdote from L'Equipe that uh, the former tournament director of the Paris Masters, Jean-Francois Cojol, openly admitted and sort of joked about that he changed the surface at the Paris Masters purposely to attract Federer to play there and to win the tournament. That it was important to the tournament director that before he leaves his post, Roger Federer wins this tournament like it was a, a notch on his bedpost. And that's one of the big themes that you'll see in international tennis, especially among men, is that a lot of tournament directors, owners, the people who own agencies, reporters even, are fans. And Federer is by far, by a huge margin, the most popular player and the most beloved. So you will see people who are important rooting on Federer, like it's in their interest that he wins. And it brings a lot of cachet to your event if Roger Federer wins it. And if he doesn't, maybe it takes a little bit of the shine off of it. If he refuses to go, for example. Mm -hmm. Or if he goes and the surface is not to his liking. Which makes a whole bunch of concessions that are likely made to Federer tenable to me. You know, I'm, I'm not too perturbed by it. What I'm concerned about here, and I'll ask you this question, what is a step too far? Because we are what quasi pseudo journalists on this podcast to an extent like we've been to events as credential right, press, right so we can't say that we are not part of that crowd totally and we've always owned our biases and we think it's okay to have biases as sport reporters provided you're upfront about them and the same goes for other facets of the sport i feel uh, commentating you know if somebody's out here constantly giving you the federal company line it would be helpful to know that, well, yeah, perhaps my perspective that is colored because I'm a Fed stan, you know? Or, like, or I'm married to Tony Gotsik. Yeah, <laughs> if you are married Joe Fernandez. Right. But that doesn't necessarily mean that you can't make meaningful contributions to the tennis discourse or the whole tennis machinery. Right. It doesn't automatically disqualify you. And we know that tournament directors, they have a tough job to do in terms of filling the seats every year. There's some tournaments that they're going to they're gonna be fine regardless. They don't have to worry about Federer showing up mm. to drive the event. But there's some tournaments that, hell, like if, if Rotterdam gets Federer, like that's a big deal. Right, and they will pay. Yeah, and, and so I'm not... I find it hard to get all riled up about the extent to which some tournament directors will go to get Federer at their event. Like, I get it. It's a business. What is too far? Well, yes, you're asking that question, and I would like to answer it. Was that a, a rhetorical question? No. Oh. There, <laughs> I mean, I have something that I would add, but I'm mm-hmm. trying to be generous here and sure. give you some time. So what, what I expect from tournaments is that 
They're going to schedule their stars when people will watch. They're going to work with TV networks, schedule Federer at night, or depending on where it, it is in the world, when Europeans can watch him on, on TV. What is a step too far to me is changing the surface explicitly to favor one player. That's too, like, that's the fact that somebody would admit that in an interview and laugh about it is so incredibly tacky to me. And I would say that regardless of who the player was, like if Wimbledon has indeed been slowed down or the balls are different or whatever and Rafael Nadal has benefited, that's one thing. But if it was slowed down in order to benefit Rafael Nadal, that's that would be horrible. If it were a smaller event, I absolutely have no problems with a tournament director doing that kind of stuff. You know, like you have you have control over how you want your tournament to be run. If that happens to be uh, to get Federer to come there, fine, whatever. You know, nobody's required to be at that event. However, when it comes to a Masters 1000 or a Grand Slam, that's a totally different situation, mm-hmm. which Paris is. Right. The other thing that Benito brought up was the ownership of Laver Cup. And he alleged that that may cause some conflicts for Craig Tiley, who is the CEO of Tennis Australia. He runs the Australian Open, and he also has an ownership, well, Tennis Australia has an ownership stake in Labor Cup, along with Team 8, which is Roger Federer's management company, in which he owns a stake. Tony Godsick also owns a stake. And uh, the other partner in Labor Cup is uh, this guy named George Paulo Lehmann from Brazil who's a Brazilian businessman and investor. So this story came out and Craig Tiley issued a response very swiftly. And this was my favorite part of this whole situation because Craig Tiley was just like, yeah, what of it? <laughs> what about it? Uh, so don't the... you don't you know what I have to go through to run a tournament? Don't you know what's involved? The accusation was about Federer's scheduling, which A lot of people raised eyebrows at last year and this year. Over these past two years, the heat in Australia has been wild. We've talked about wet globe temperature over and over again. And Roger Federer had played 12 of his last 14 matches at night. Mm -hmm. And that's a fact. Benito said 12 or 13. He was very, very close. So the question is, Craig Tiley is involved in the Labor Cup ownership Benito alleges that he gets paid for marketing and stuff like that, like he's actually on the take. I I can't confirm or deny. I have no idea if he has like a personal financial stake in it. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Uh, but he's invested professionally in the success of Labor Cup. He is also the one who's running the Australian Open. The accusation was that his ties to Federer in that way make him inherently conflicted, like blinds him to the conflict, right? Mm-hmm that he has a stake in making Roger Federer happy. And that's, I mean, that's a pretty good anecdote to give if you, if you want to prove that point. The other one was that Federer was scheduled to play Struff and Djokovic and Malfis were going to play at the same, like on the same day. That is obviously a blockbuster match. People want to see that. And they suffered and played in absolute hell during the day. Like it was an awful, awful match. It's, Both players looked like they were going to drop dead, and Federer played at night. It's easy to forget a lot of the matches that happen throughout the course of a year, because there are so many. And we often struggle to remember matches, especially at the end of the year, we're like, well, oh, the matches of the year, like, I don't remember anything. I will never not remember 
that Djokovic Morphe's match because of how hellish it was. Right. And how much we were anticipating it. Here's my thing and why I don't buy Craig Tyler's what I call bullshit here. I, I take all his points. You know, all his points are true. But if I am in his position and I am aware of my conflicts, which he obviously is, <laughs> right. but yet Federer is allowed to play 12 or 14 matches at night. That tells me that Tylee doesn't think that anybody outside of the hierarchy of tennis knows about the conflicts or give a shit about the conflicts. Because if I'm, if I'm in his position, I've been in situations where I've been conflicted out about certain things, mm-hmm. right? And I make sure to go to great lengths so as to not give the even remotest impression that I'm conflicted in this decision making. Like, I, I, go the, I go the distance. Right. To not show favoritism or... Yes. Whatever. And it's incumbent of you in that situation, if you're going to play the game in tennis of, of wearing one of these hats while you own five more in the closet, you have to be aware of what those other hats mean to other people and the implications for other people. And so when you're making decisions wearing this hat, it's incumbent on you to, to safeguard against being caught in the position that he's caught in now. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't think this is not going to have any effect on Roger or Craig Tiley. This doesn't endanger their livelihoods. In other businesses, the appearance of conflict can be very toxic. Mm -hmm. And, And people take great aims, like you described, to avoid them. In tennis, like, tennis does not care about looking this amateurish. And whether it's Nadal, Serena, Federer... Djokovic, giving preferential treatment to players in this way does make you look amateurish, in my opinion. That's it. Like, I just... Obviously, you protect your stars, and they get privileges that nobody else does. But when leaders in your sport, non like non-players, when leaders have financial interests tied up in these decisions, it just makes tennis look so... Uh, what's... Just, like, old and stodgy and... And this is how we've always done things. This is the 1%. Somewhat illegitimate. Right. And so that's what concerns me. I'm not concerned about Roger Federer's titles. Uh, I am i don't think this impugns his greatness or we're not going to sit here and say he, he would have won fewer tournaments had this not been the case. That is not of interest to me. What's of interest to me is the future of tennis and that I and other people respect the sport as a sport i mean there was that's a lot of ambiguous stuff you just said there more specifically to me it's absolutely a problem when somebody plays 12 or 14 matches at night when there's such a huge discrepancy in the conditions for other players right and the reason why the struff morphis example was used was because if you were entirely in that position if I were Tyler in that position, I'd be, scour- I'd be scouring the order of play to be like, oh, oh my God, praise Jesus. Novak versus Mofis. I don't have to worry about this. Yeah, you know, yeah, I've been yeah. given a gift. They go there. Roger can't even say nothing to me if he comes to me because like this one's a no-brainer. Right. Because like, Roger, you're going to win in straight sets. What are you going to lose? Three games? And like- then I get to have people not be looking at me while I'm making this decision. Mm-hmm. It, it's it's crazy to me that he's been allowed to be caught with his hand in the cookie jar <laughs> this way. But the other side of that is that 
there is an argument that people will pay to watch Federer win in 65 minutes. They that, will. That generates a lot of interest and money. And that you know that's the argument for putting Federer on at night, even if the match is so flop. Sure, but we're talking about a 14-time Grand Slam champion, and no matter how <laughs> right. much people want to say Novak isn't loved or he wants to be loved, the ways that Federer and Nadal are, but he isn't. He is still a huge draw. And Mofis, who is such a fan favorite, disproportionate to his ranking. Yeah, we've we've said it all the time that we're always amazed by how much attention Mofis gets on the practice court, even to this day. That was a no-brainer. So when that example is used, it's used for a reason. Hmm. The point being here that Craig Talley just didn't give a fuck when he should have given a fuck (laughs) about this conflict of interest. And does that make Federer look bad? Sure. Is it his fault? No. Right. Like, Like, does it make him guilty? Probably not. No. Federer is allowed to have to benefit from stuff at this stage of his career to a certain degree if he can make requests or whatever and they're granted him sure he's done so much for the sport this is the kind of gray area where you're probably listening and be like well didn't you just say i'm like well you know things are not that cut and dry but for me this one specific instance with craig tiley that is cut and dry hmm. like 12 of 14 that mofis struff match situation untenable and right. with with you holding that position in the sport and then being involved with the Labor Cup, you can't just come here now and write, write a big list and release it about all the, all your considerations, you know, and have me just, like, buy it. Like, mm. get away from here with that. I'm not having it. Now, you said what I, what I was trying to say was a bit abstract, and I'm going to continue along those abstract lines. I'm not naive enough to, to think that sport is a pure meritocracy. You hear that a lot in, in the mythology of sport, that if you're good enough, you will succeed, period. It, it rewards merit. However, in that spirit, shouldn't we be removing barriers to the meritocracy rather than putting up barriers? What I mean by that is Djokovic and Isner and several other players made these comments in response to it and were bordering on sycophantic, especially John Isner. Like, I just had to sit back and cackle about what he said talking about how Nadal, Federer, and Djokovic have done so much for the sport that I think they should get even more benefits. And he went on and on, like, doing the most. It's like, what What mm-hmm. do you mean more benefits? Should they get spotted three games per set? Yeah. I, what What more do you want? Ask, ask Isner what Serena's done for the game and if she should get those benefits exactly, as well. Exactly. And to quote Don Draper, that's what the money is for. The prize money, the endorsements they get... All these little extras, that's what the money is for. Mm-hmm. Like, what what other privileges do you want them to get? They're beloved across the world. People admire them. I, I just, I don't get it. That's such a one-percenter philosophy. It's so in keeping with John Isner's politics, too. Also, can we call bullshit on Novak Djokovic with his answer about, oh, I don't think there's any favoritism going on? Because he explicitly <laughs> alluded to it. In the moment, back in the day. He is he is a great diplomat these days. I mean, I get not wanting to wade into shit unnecessarily when you just finished a match or heading into a tournament. You don't want to deal with it right now. But for all the things that people choose to wade into, now you're going to backtrack. You can still give two sides of that coin. Say, yeah, you know, there have been instances where I felt it wasn't necessarily fair. Roger definitely should benefit from a lot of those situations. I don't think that was one where it should have. But no, to be like, well, nope. 
Didn't Listen, happen. This is the love and peace era of Djokovic's career, so just he's not going down that road. This is the finale of Mad Men. Is that what you're saying? Yes. <laughs> okay, let's put that all to rest. Now we're going to do a little segment called Yes or Mess. There's like a whole bunch of stuff that happened over the last two weeks, and we're just going to run through them, and we're going to give our, our opinion one way or the other. The first one, we were beside ourselves when we saw this in London. Sasha Zverev showed up and did his pre-tournament photographs wearing jogger pants as part of his suit with no socks. No socks. I don't know. If he were wearing joggers, it would look better. Those were sweatpants from the 90s. I think I wore those to kindergarten once. The the uh, elastic cuffs. It's a mess, obviously. He gets a little bit of a pass because these, these young children have to go through bad fashions. You know, it's just what kids do. No, it's an absolute atrocity. <laughs> it is unforgivable. I, I could not believe it. Like, I'm, there was so much to see in the group picture, and that just stood out like a sore thumb. And Dominic says on video, why you don't wear socks? <laughs> <laughs> and of course, I just, I'm the best dress one here. Like, ugh. Ugh. <laughs> I mean, I... I, cl- I was going to say teenagers, but he's not a teenager, but close enough. It was so obnoxious. I, I, I could not believe it. So are you saying that you did not like it? I did not like it. Okay. Let's move on. He was preparing for a flood, apparently. (laughs) (laughs) Novak Djokovic was asked in London about gay players on the ATP, much like we did in Cincinnati with Federer. Hat tip to us. Just dropped your name right in there. (laughs) And, you know, he echoed a lot of what Federer said. Not verbatim, but the general gist was exactly the same. Yes, he was a lot more prepared with his answer seemed like he had thought about it more, probably realized it's possible I'm going to be asked about this at some point, so let me just think on it for a second. And he was very eloquent, and obviously it's not perfect, but he referenced the fact that it is courageous Mm -hmm. to live open and proudly, which not everyone does. I I think not everyone understands that. And that was a through line between both answers, because Mm -hmm. Federer hit on the same point as well. And that's the thing... That made me feel good most from both of them. Yeah. So, yes to Novak Djokovic. Yes, Novak. Serena was on the cover of GQ. They usually do their men of the year. She was, quote, woman of the year. Why the quotes, Jonathan? Because we are again, yet again, being (laughs) force-fed Virgil Abloh's bullshit. (laughs) And the ramifications for this are so gross okay and insidious the quotes are virgil's thing right yes they're they've been the through line from serena's u.s open kit the shoes the the logo thing that's this is just his thing like this is something that obviously symbolizes uh something it's meant to be deep on some level (laughs) you know the, the 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 things that folks concoct to make themselves thinking people or seen as thinking people of being deep. I it's you know, do that. That's Virgil's thing. That the magazine allowed that to be printed is absolutely like, absurd. Okay. Absurd. Uh, it's so bad. We don't even have to go into why. Like, if you are listening to this podcast, you probably get it. Like for a woman who has been 
her her femininity and her body have been discussed and debated and thrown into question right for how many years like her the fact i mean people have called her and zarina man monkey gorilla just the williams brothers like why how could that ever get through an editing process a lot of people look at the front cover of a magazine before it is okay to print it's just silly and this is not something i'm gonna lay at serena's feet no because that is absolutely not her responsibility so mess an absolute unmitigated certifiable fucking mess that situation dennis shabovalov has a burgeoning new career hat tip to fat nancy on twitter she dm'd us to request that we talk about this on this show and i said say what now (laughs) what you hadn't seen it i'd seen it uh and she didn't know that we're going to be doing this yes or mess Mm -hmm. segment and it fit it dovetailed perfectly so thank you nancy dennis is an amateur rap artist did Mm -hmm. you know that in his very brief off season he's been working with a few collaborators some i don't know who they are producers rappers from toronto and Rob Steckley, who is Lucy Safajeva's former coach, directed one of the little uh, video vignettes that Dennis mm-hmm. put on his Instagram. Dennis has been upping his Insta game, his social media game. He's been releasing all these little cute videos mm-hmm. in his mind. <laughs> and He's got to compete with Vashek. Sure. And against that backdrop, I'm here for it. Because he doesn't seem to be taking himself too seriously. Objectively, the rapping is atrocious. The rapping itself is a mess. But the spirit of it Mm. and how I receive it is an absolute yes. Sure. I mean, if you want to blame anyone, blame Drake. Because every white kid in Toronto thinks that they have a rap future now. The ATP made this big hullabaloo. (laughs) For like a couple days, we're like, we got this big announcement coming. Look out for it. Check this space. Watch this space. (laughs) It's coming. The world will be shifting before your eyes. And what had happened was they changed their logo to something that if you have a pair of magnifying glasses, uh, you'd be able to tell that it's about tennis. If you did not know what the ATP was. Because the the tennis player is like playing a, a ground stroke in the middle of the letters. Whereas previously it was a serving silhouette. Mm-hmm. Very... It, it's just some so uninteresting. I can I cannot get myself worked up about this news in any possible way. It was kind of like that Britney Spears announcement where she went on Ellen to say that I'm not ready to make the announcement. I've announced that I'm not ready for the announcement. This was a huge anticlimax. And the logo is ugly. So moving on. Which is to say a mess. <laughs> I will say that the 1990 logo which had all these wonderful, bright, queer, or queer-adjacent... Queer? Queer-adjacent colors (laughs) in the logo. We don't own colors, only the rainbow. Listen, it's tennis, and they use those colors, it's fucking queer. (laughs) Okay? And it was... That's the best one. They, They gave you this video showing all the logos throughout the years, and then, bam, here's a new one, which flatlined. What they should have done was brought back the old one and said, well, hey... We are going to make steps to become a more inclusive tour. That would have been great. That would have been wonderful. Okay. Rafa Nadal won the Roger Federer Sports... Oh, sorry. The Stefan Edberg (laughs) Sportsmanship Award this year. 
if you recall, if you've been paying attention to this, Federer has won 13 of the last 14 Edberg Sportsmanship Awards. The only time he didn't win was in 2010 when Rafa won the first time. (laughs) So of the last, of what, 15 years, Federer's won 13 and Rafa's now won two. Yes. Were there no other good sportsmen in those 15 years? Kevin Anderson did everything to be a good sportsman this year. Everything. Uh, What if he was running? (laughs) You know, like what if he was really working toward that award and, and it's just been given away to somebody else? I would say this award is an entire mess, like a whole Mm -hmm. mess. Rafa winning it isn't egregious, but it would be nice to spread the love a little bit. The biggest mess of all, sang in the key of the greatest love of all, (laughs) is Garbinia Muguruza's Poetic Justice Janet Braids that she debuted. Mm -hmm. What in the holy hell was that? Um... I believe that white people have said quite enough about black people's hair. I thought you were going to say, I believe the children are the future. (laughs) I do, but I will defer to you because I have no opinion. Ah, She wasn't even in the tropics. Is that the only excuse? Like, if you go on a tropical vacation, you can get box braids? I can. What s- about the tropics says box braids? I can see how you can fall victim to that. (laughs) Some local person is trying... To put food on the table and say, hey, come white person, I'll put those braids in your hair. And you mm. do it. Okay. You fall victim to that trap. I get it. But this is like, this is wild. It was, I, I sat here and I stared at it for a long time. And I was like, Garby girl, no. But I will say, if I do not see her recreating 90s R&B music videos, I'm going to be really upset. Because you've just wasted those braids. <laughs> the final bit of this a big yes to riley apelka who's somebody we've talked about over the last couple of years if you weren't paying attention he's won his last two challengers in knoxville and then again in champagne to crack the top 100 seemingly out of nowhere oh i didn't even know that he's ranked number 98 now and likely to get into the main draw of a grand slam for the first time based on his ranking this is somebody who wow jack sock could never <laughs> And he won't. <laughs> he may get a wild card. Can you imagine? He won't. These ridiculous reciprocal wild cards based on nation is going to reward Jack Sock. Sad. Uh, so there's a mess part of it, and the, but the yes goes to Riley Opelka and also to Whitney Osigwe, who we've documented on this show has been playing well. She has won the American wild card to get direct entry mm-hmm. into the Australian Open. The wild card I just criticized, but go on, girl. You get that wild card. To finish up the show, we're going we're gonna to talk about a couple coaching changes and then a couple big retirements in tennis. Huge retirements. Darren and Simona, Darren Cahill and Simona Halep are no longer a tandem because Darren says he needs to spend more time with his family. Right. He said this is solely on his end for family reasons he doesn't want to travel anymore this relationship has seen many ups and downs a lot of stops and starts i would be surprised if this were the end for darren and simona forever i'd be very surprised if they didn't get back together but it's a it's a big a big shift in coaching in women's tennis and it's now that simona has reached the pinnacle of women's tennis she's gotten to number one she's won her slam 2018 was a huge year for her in terms of 
the maturation, emancipation of Simona Hell, <laughs> right? How will she now move forward out of the shadow of that coaching relationship? Mm-hmm. Because we've talked at ad nauseum about how fair or unfair it is to credit Cahill to the extent that he was for Simona's success and the, the dynamic that they had in on-court coaching situations and whether or not she was able to navigate tough spots in matches by herself. Mm-hmm. We shall see. Will she feel like she has something to prove now mm-hmm. without him? Angelique Kerber, after hiring Wimfaset at the end of 2017 to course correct her terrible year after having such a great 2016, the two of them had a wonderful year this year. Not so much the second half of it, but right up until Wimbledon, where she won Wimbledon. Mm-hmm. She had a great year. Made the semis in Australia. That epic match against Simona Halep. Wins Wimbledon. Shocked everybody at Wimbledon, pretty much. And, and now they're done. Which is something of a pattern with Vim Vincent. Uh I don't know what goes on behind the scenes. If he's asking for too much money or too much control or whatever. But these relationships don't last very long after his players get huge success for some reason. Joe Conta has also split with Michael Joyce. And... Who may be working with you-know-who, mm-hmm. Eugenie Bouchard. Yeah, Serena's new bestie. He does have a, a way with villainous blonde types. Such as? Maria Sharapova. Hello. <laughs> and Bouchard. So now, Joyce, it's not entirely confirmed, but it's rumored that he's going to be working with Bouchard. And now, Vissette is seen practicing with Azarenka, so it looks like he's gone back And to I Vika. say, uh, bring it on. If this gets Vika back to where she rightfully should be, let's see. Now to the big news. With the retirements first, Lucy Shavashova has announced that the Australian Open will be her final tournament. After making the 2015 French Open final, her career kind of stalled in singles due to a, a lot of injuries mm-hmm. and, and illnesses. Il- these illnesses. Yeah. It's just, it's really sad having watched her over the past few years because she's, it's been so difficult for her to really sustain, uh, you know, a few tournaments in a row, even being able to play dealing with these illnesses. And this, so this will be her swan song in Australia. I'm hoping that she'll be able to partner with Bethany and get one more title mm-hmm. and go out on a high note. Because she's young, and uh, had her body not betrayed her in this way, she's potentially leaving a whole lot of prize money on the table in her career. It's one thing to retire on your own terms, which is what we hope for every professional athlete. It's an entirely different thing to feel like you could still achieve but can't because your body won't let you. Mm -hmm. The big news, the biggest news on the retirement front. Is, of course, Agnieszka Radwanska decided to call it quits She's been dealing with this foot injury for a long time, and it's just not something that she is able to overcome. It's, uh, you know, there's not a surgery that's going to address it, apparently. She's not going to be able to play at this level, and she can't play without pain, which, I mean, puts you in an impossible position. So here she is at age 29, Mm -hmm. I think, when women are playing, well, everyone is playing longer than ever, and she has to bow out of the game. Um, it's it's sad, and I don't think, you know, I didn't really appreciate Aga enough when she was playing. You definitely didn't. Definitely didn't. And I do now. You don't know what you got till it's gone, right? She's a really unusual player in women's tennis these days. 
for me, I look back to, of course, that Wimbledon final against Serena, I think in 2012, the 2013 Wimbledon semifinals, which she lost against Lisicki, that was such a huge, huge chance to win Wimbledon for her because Marion Bartoli shocked everyone by beating Lisicki in that final. She reached another Wimbledon final, or semifinal, sorry, and she reached a few semifinals in Australia as well. Like, she has had such an accomplished career, winning 20 titles. This is, you know, on the short list of players who are the best players to not have won a slam. Thinking about this retirement, it really paints the picture of just how much women's tennis has changed. On the one hand, like you said, players are playing much longer than they ever have before. It wouldn't be surprising if in two, three years she decides to come back because of it. You know, like it doesn't mean that it's the end forever. I think that's something that we now think every time somebody retires because the game has changed. The longevity of players' careers has changed so much. Steffi Graf retired at, what, 29? And that was like, oh, yeah, it makes sense. For like the two or three years preceding that, she had a couple injuries. She was out for most of 1997, I believe. People were like, yeah, Steffi's nearing the end. I remember Mm -hmm. that. Right, right. And it was absolutely par for the course. People expected it. Now, if somebody's playing well at 29, it's an absolute shock that they would retire. I mean, Aga was struggling with injuries and the ranking had declined. And so it doesn't come as a surprise in that regard because she, she had been struggling for a while. But the actual age that she's retiring at is a surprise now because the game has changed. Mm-hmm. And also what makes her such a special player within this era is that her game was so viscerally different from everybody else. Like the, You have this dichotomy built into tennis where you have the power player and then the backboard. The player who isn't gifted enough to be able to power through their opponent and Aga was that to an extent but she was different in that she was able to create so many different shots and opportunities on the court that other players of her physical ilk weren't able to right. and I generally don't like the these this dichotomy of like the thinking player and the ball basher mm-hmm. but Aga was someone who was so creative on court that it was devastating and the match that really stands out for me is her beating victoria azarenka at the australian open i think it was in 2015 because i had never seen first of all i'd never seen aga play like that i don't think i've ever seen anyone do things like that with the tennis ball and just uh, at at times confound and even embarrass vika like she was mad you know when someone asks us, potentially, you know, people ask us now stuff about tennis because we have somewhat of an expertise, having done this for a while. If somebody were to ask us in a couple of years, tell me a little bit about Agnieszka Radwanska. You know, what was she like? The thing that will most come to mind is that she was a tennis player who did things that you'd never seen before and was incredibly skillful. Mm-hmm in ways that other players could only dream of. So thanks for tuning in. Thanks for dealing with our, our long hiatus. It's It was really important to bring you a show that was uh, careful and, uh, and researched and not sloppy. Like we didn't want to just drop in and say, oh, here's what happened, you know? So it does take us a little longer sometimes. Buy Caution on iTunes, stream it on Spotify. 
Uh, how else do people get music these days? I don't Apple even know. Music? Like, you, YouTube is even counting on the Billboard charts. Uh, anyway, by caution. Mm-hmm. Let us know what your favorite tracks are, because we got our favorites. We differ on some things. Like, I think Giving Me Life is um, A-plus amazing, and you think it's just kind of like, eh. No, or- well, everybody thinks it's amazing, and I get it. Like, objectively, I get it. It's just not, you know, you know when you know you're supposed to like something, and mm-hmm. you, you're just like so-so on it? That's I'm, where I am. I'm exposing you right now to all the other lambs because you also don't really like the roof, which is like, eh. You got nothing wow. to say, and that's fine. How that's could fine. you even do that? <laughs> uh, I, I mean, the distance needs to be a single stat. A no-no needs to be remixed with Cardi and yes, Kim stat. Yes, the Mariah's consent bop. <laughs> the distance is a classic. Like, just hands down i they have to release it i also love eighth grade it's the epitome of oh. great r and say what now it's it's something i do it's my own personal mariahism <laughs> it's the epitome of great r&b on that note thanks for listening my name is jonathan you can find me on twitter at tennis underscore john i'm james i'm at elliot jmr the podcast is on twitter at the body serve similarly on instagram Thanks for listening. Thanks to the folks who have given us reviews on iTunes recently. We've seen them. We thank you. Till next time. Thank you. Thank you very much.